The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And our subject again today and for these next several weeks as we study this part of Scripture is the Spirit speaks to the seven churches. And today we're going to look at just a small part of this Scripture in Revelation chapter 2 and mainly we're going to concentrate on one of the greatest Christological statements that we see in the Bible. And I'll explain that to you in just a few minutes. These are the messages of our Lord Jesus Christ to seven first-century churches that were in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor. They are first-century churches, but the condition of each of these churches describes churches of similar condition in our time. Now, there are, of course, many people who say that the Bible lacks relevance for the modern world, that it's a book that was written uh, for a different time and a different place to different people, that it is a book without significance and without sophistication, a book of superstition, and it's not for people today. But we proved that to be false many, many times. In our study of the Ten Commandments, we learned that the commandments are certainly relevant to every one of us today, that they are a mirror of our lives, and there is no one in the world who was without the just condemnation that the commandments impose. Now, the Bible is a universal book, a timeless book, that's proven once again by what we see here in the book of Revelation. In the opening, the Apostle John heard a thunderous voice from heaven that identified himself as the Alpha and Omega, and that was the living Christ, not someone who is a bygone character of history, And this person spoke and told John to write, and he told him to record words that uh, were about the past, about the present, and about the future. And he told him to send these, these words, these letters, to seven churches that were in the first century, and those churches are named in the first chapter, verse 11. So John, writing things, past, present, and future... Uh, makes Revelation a book of history, it makes it a book of current events, and also a book for the future. And so what is more relevant than a book that encompasses the whole existence of man? And so in these two chapters of chapters 2 and 3, we actually see John writing in the present. And what I mean by present is that The conditions that he describes in these churches are the conditions of our time. This is the disposition of the Lord's churches. And the present in the book of Revelation is the time that spans from the day that Jesus was crucified and arose from the grave and to the time that he returns to this world. Now afterwards, in chapter 4... Uh, He tells us of the future. He speaks of a time that's beyond the rapture of the church, and that's when the Lord will begin to unwind His creation. He will purge it of its corruption, and then a righteous, earthly kingdom of the Lord Christ will come to this earth, and finally He will destroy everything in a great conflagration as He prepares for the perfection of the heavens, new heavens, and the new earth. But now... In this section, 
We see the condition of God's people in a time that we know as the church age. These churches are representative of all churches from the time of the ascended Christ until the descended Christ, a period that's now more than 2,000 years, a period that will continue until God the Father himself tells our Lord that it's time for him to return. So in these chapters, we find ourselves as the Spirit of God speaks to the church today, and somewhere in these letters we will find the Lord's assessment of the Berean Baptist Church, and there may be multiple parts of these messages that are for us, maybe some of the condemnations, some of the commendations. We're going to find ourselves in either of those two categories. Prayerfully, we find ourselves in commendation, not condemnation. Now today we're going to look at the second of the seven letters, This is the next church that is on the postal route. The first church was in the city of Ephesus. They received their letter. We talked about that the past few weeks. And we saw that although the church at Ephesus was good in many areas, rather, the the, uh, church at Ephesus had a major deficiency that they were in danger of losing their status as one of the Lord's churches. Uh, They were a church that was active and orthodox, Perhaps we could say they were an academic church, and that's because of the fine grasp of the doctrines of the faith they had. But academia is not the same as love for Christ. There are professors in universities that teach theology, and they don't know very much about Christ. They, can un- they understand some doctrine, they can explain what doctrine means, but If that doctrine does not produce a profound love for Jesus Christ, it is of no use. So a church that's in love with activity more than it is with Christ will not stay with the Lord. And if the Lord, or rather if the church loses that focus of Christ, it can't remain true. And that's because the Lord is not going to take second place to anyone. He has to be first in our lives. And so the message to that church was a warning, repent and return. Go back to your love, the Lord Christ, or lose your place as a light on his lampstand. Well, now we come to the second church. This church is located at Smyrna, and the letter to them begins in verse number 8. What is the Lord going to say to this church? Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now my title for this church, the church at Smyrna, is the church under fire. This is the persecuted church. They were all persecuted, but this is one that we need to take a very close look at because this church stands for churches that are under intense hostility from a world that hates Christ. Each of these letters follows a distinct pattern. First, Jesus identifies something about himself, something as, uh, of his character as the author of the letter. Then he says something good about the church, if that's appropriate, then proceeds to his complaint. 
He states words of, of correction. He demands repentance. And then he ends with a solemn charge for the church to hear, or in other words, to hear what the, heed what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's the general pattern of what we read in these uh, seven letters. But there are two churches that did not need any correction. There aren't any rebukes for those churches. And then there's one church that had so many problems, there was nothing but rebuke for that church. But Smyrna is a church that had no negative word. In fact, I believe this is a church that had a very special place in the Lord's heart. Perhaps more than any others, it reminded him of the treatment that he received, that he was persecuted, and they crucified him. And maybe he saw himself in this church, that he saw his body in the world, that although cruelly treated, this is a church that remained faithful, even as Jesus Christ remained faithful to his Father's will. Now, there's something we understand here, and that is that the Lord loves all of his people. Even when his people are in error, when they begin to go astray, the Lord still loves them. And so we find a message to a church, the, the, the church in, in, in the third chapter, a church that had everything wrong, and yet Jesus still expressed his love for them. And he says in the 19th verse, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus still loves his sheep that stray. He's a good shepherd that goes after the wayward sheep to bring them home. And so rebuking them and chastening them and bringing things into your life as a Christian in order to correct you, to bring you back, that's what the Lord does because He loves you. He brings things into your life because He loves you. He wants you to return to Him just as a parent will discipline his child and bring that child back to what he should be. But we need to be sure we understand this as well, that the Lord is not presumptuous with the ones that remain faithful and the ones that stay in the fold, that His attention is not diverted away from them, the ones that aren't bothersome because they need no rebuke and no attention. He doesn't leave that person either to fend for himself. And then the Lord just concentrates on chasing down the ones that are bothersome. And every shepherd of the church, every pastor of a church loves members that aren't bothersome. And sometimes we tend to neglect those because they don't require very much attention. We're always chasing and we're always dealing with special needs, Christians. And we don't think very much about those that are faithful, that are sitting in the pew, that are never in any trouble. And we just assume that the faithful will always be faithful and they really don't need our attention. But we do need to remember that the faithful have their struggles. And without proper attention, the faithful can become unfaithful. And so we need words of encouragement and words of commendation for those that are steadfast in the faith. And so a pastor, though he needs those kinds of members, and, and strong churches are built upon those kinds of members, if I have ever failed to express my appreciation... For those of you that make this ministry joyous and not grievous, I sincerely apologize for that. Hebrews tells us that the church is to obey the pastor because he watches for your soul and to obey so he can minister with joy and not grief. And I think that there's a word in there for pastors to be sure that we are actually watching for your souls, both the obedient and those that are not as faithful as they should be. And so I, I would like to say to those of you that are faithful, 
to those that are here week in and week out, to those of you who do most of the work in the church, to those of you who volunteer, to those of you who are here to serve the Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Our church needs that. We need you to be faithful. And I know that you have your struggles, but like this church at Smyrna, you've not been overcome by the difficulties. You've not surrendered to worldly influences that take your attention away from God. And so this is what Christ has to say to this church. You are the church that has not strayed with the very worst that can happen to you. You haven't given up. And so they weren't distracted from the cause of Christ. And though they were severely persecuted and they were under trials, this is a church that remained faithful. And to a church needing encouragement, the church that is faithful, the Lord comes with a message that they need. And Lord, the Lord knows how to do that. He knows what you need. In your darkest moments when you have troubles, He knows what you need. And as we learn the lessons of these letters, I want you to see that the living Christ is always current with the answer that you have for every need. He knows what you're going through. And why does He know it? Because He's been there. He's been through every experience, every ounce of pain, every little bit of or lot of rejection that you feel, Christ experienced that. The King James Version uses a beautiful word to express that. It says in Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He is able to succor. I don't know why modern versions don't like that word. Instead, they replace it with help. Sucker is much more meaningful than help, isn't it? Sucker is a word that causes you to stop and to think. And to think about how the suffering of Christ translates into sympathy for what you go through. And this is what this church faced. It's the issue of intense persecution. They're in a terrible time of tribulation. And we know that this letter is current. Because in 2,000 years of church history, there has never been a time when the church is not has not been in persecution. And you might not think so, because we've lived in this country for so long, and it's been a place of freedom where we can preach the Word of God. Our suffering for Christ is so little that it's hard to identify with pain and suffering and death that goes on in other parts of the world. And yet we read the history of this, and, and we look at this in times past, we look at it in the first century, we look at the Inquisition of the Dark Ages... And we look at popes that killed Baptist people by the millions, and we tend to believe that the church has passed all of that. That there isn't any more persecution in the world. But the reality is that the United States is only a small part of worldwide Christianity. And today across the world, there are Christians that die for their faith. And there are places that are hard to reach with the gospel of Christ because the persecution is intense. And we're not very much aware of that. Much of it we don't hear about. Much of it we largely ignore. The news media constantly chastises our government administration for its too much caution with Muslim refugees and hardly ever a word is said about Christians that come out of places like Syria that have been beaten and killed and they die because of their faith. When is the last time that a suicide bomber was a Christian? Persecution is not a medieval bygone problem. You travel to three-fourths of the world, whether, whether it's under 
atheism or communism or where dark ages ideas still reign in the backwardness of Islam. And folks, it is a dangerous thing to be a Christian. And you need to be aware that the same persecution is getting nearer to us as a religion that was founded upon jihad and, me, and, and murder gains followers in a mosque near you. So to those churches across the world in persecution, here's a message for them. The Lord is aware. He has a message for this little church uh, from Smyrna that is in Smyrna. The Bible is up to date. God knows what's going on. And as American Christians, we need to understand that the peace that we have here is not the peace of the world. So this word is relevant. Christians in other places don't look to us as examples of courage under fire. We're bellyaching Christians. We're Christians that barely make it to church on a Sunday because too many other things have our attention. While others in other parts of the world will make sure they get to church even if their presence there means death. The Lord knows those churches. And those are churches that are dear to His heart. Now we're going to talk about persecution and pain and suffering. That's really the heart of this letter. That's the issue. The Lord is with this church. They took the worst and they never faltered. Persecution would not cause them to abandon their faith. But before we talk about those things, and we will over the next few weeks, we want to back up and examine how the Lord greets this church with encouragement and how he shows that he is the Lord who has the answer to their needs. So we're going to look primarily at this today, and that is the power of Christ. The power of Christ. And I want to spend our time on this part, the power of Christ. Now, the letter is written to the angel of the church at Smyrna. I want you to remember that angel in this context simply means the pastor. Angel means messenger. And so the letter is written to the pastor of this church. This is not a supernatural being. This is given to a man to tell to the people in this church. Now, some believe that the messengers that are spoken of here are a special group of messengers, that there are seven of them, and these messengers all travel together. And they go to the first church at Ephesus, and one of the messengers is for them. And so that messenger stays at Ephesus to deliver the message. Then the other six go on to the next church, so they would come to Smyrna. And there's a messenger for them, and that messenger stays with them. And then five more go to the next church, and on and on down to the last church. I don't think that's true. I think that it's more likely, and most agree, that the letter goes to the pastor of the individual church. There are others who think that the messenger is a prelatical bishop, that he's over a group of churches, and he's given the message to deliver a group of, to a group of churches. But I know that that can't be true because the New Testament knows nothing at all about hierarchical positions in the church, such as archbishops and cardinals and popes and so on. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. And so the best interpretation we have here is that this is the pastor. And so a postman is sent to the church to deliver a letter to the pastor. And it's just like when someone writes a letter to Berean Baptist that most often those letters are addressed to me because I'm the one that's going to take care of whatever that letter is about. So the salutation of the letter begins with a message to the pastor as the Lord identifies that he is the one who has all power. Now I'd like to 
weave into our study some comments about the city of Smyrna, and information about this city is actually integral to understanding their difficulty. And I'll continue to do that as we speak from week to week, but I think it's helpful for us now to consider the name of this city. The name is Smyrna, and that word comes from myrrh. It's the same word as myrrh. Myrrh is a perfume from a thorny plant that has a very pleasing aroma. And in a biblical context, we understand myrrh because that's one of the gifts that was brought to Jesus at his birth. The wise men brought myrrh. But perhaps we're more familiar with myrrh as we look at Jesus in his death. Myrrh was mixed with wine, and that was offered to him while he was on the cross. And we're careful to note that Jesus refused to drink that wine that was mingled with myrrh because that was a mixture that was given to dying men to help ease the suffering. And Jesus did not want his suffering eased. He didn't want suffering tempered. He wanted the full use of all of his human faculties and he didn't want it to be blunted by any mind-altering substance. Christ never asked us to suffer more than he suffered. We also note that myrrh was used in his burial. It was an anointing spice, and it was used to uh, mask the smell of a decaying body. And of course, Jesus never needed it for that, because his body never decayed. He never saw any corruption. He was dead, but there was no smell of decay. The body saw no corruption. And so, for these first century Christians, though, Smyrna is an appropriate name, because while the city was beautiful, and often the aroma of myrrh was in the air, yet it was a horrible place for them, because the stench of death was on many, because their lives had been taken in the name of Christ. And so, to this church that needed special encouragement, there's a letter that's perfectly suited for their need. And it begins with Jesus Christ asserting his protective power. He is, as it says in verse number one, or verse number, uh, verse number eight, the first and the last. And that means that he exists before anything. Everything. He exists before anything and everything. Everything was made by him. Colossians 1 tells us this. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The first and the last. First means before anything. Last means beyond anything. He is first because he is pre-existence. Existent. Our, our theology of Christ is not that his humanity is the first that we see of him. Jesus was human. He took on human flesh, but he was God. And not that he gave up being God, but that humanity was added to him, and he had all of the attributes of God. Now, unlike Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons who don't believe that Jesus is God, but rather that he came into being. He did not because the Bible says he did not. He is first, he is always existent, and he is there until the last. He is beyond the finite existence of human life, and he is in the eternity of a future that will never end. And that's great hope for Christians because the first and the last guarantees our eternal life. Those that believe in Him, the Word of God, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And so the first and the last is the guarantee of our existence with him. Now, if you look back to chapter 1, there is an important statement of Christology. Now, that means our theology of the doctrine of Christ. I alluded to this earlier. In verse number 11, the voice that spoke to John introduced him himself in words that the translators kept in the original language. I am Alpha and Omega. And then the intent of the meaning of that phrase, the first and the last. Many times we've discussed the significance of Christ's I am statements. He often used that phrase when he was speaking to Jews so they so there'd be no misunderstanding of what he meant, that he was identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. The Jews could read that, they could understand that, they could see how that God used the very same terms. But perhaps there isn't an I am that's greater than this one when Jesus said, I am the first and the last. And so there's no mistaking there that he identifies himself with Jehovah God of the Old Testament. This ties us directly to the prophecy of Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. That's Old Testament. And this is what Jesus said in the New Testament. Beside me there is no God. I am first and last. And there isn't a more powerful statement of the deity of Christ than this, that He's not as Jehovah Witnesses claim in their translation of John 1.1, He is not a God, but He is the God. He is the only God. Beside Him there is no God. And folks, that is a very critical component of Christology. There's exclusivity in that statement. And so He says to Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and to all others, there is no God but Him. Your God is no God. And let's be very clear about this, that Muslims do not serve the same God as Christians. He is not God by another name. And this is why we don't have an interfaith dialogue with Muslims, because they are worshipers of a non-existent, fabricated God. We can't take the tact of Mother Teresa, who was canonized by Catholicism and declared to be a saint, and yet said her goal was to make Hindus better Hindus, and Muslims better Muslims. Now we're speaking of the one true God versus non-existent gods. Jesus said, beside me, there is no God. And so he doesn't, he doesn't permit the mixing of the true and the false. And that was the core reason for persecution at Smyrna. Because it demanded, false religion demanded, heathen gods would be put alongside of Christ. Or to affirm Allah, if you will. And God would not permit it. Now, Islam is not equal to Christianity. Islam, nor Buddhism, nor any of the others is a viable option, and friends will pay dearly for equalizing that with Christianity. And we're not big-hearted by opening up our arms to coexist in our church with false religions. We betray Christ if we do. And these are Christians in Smyrna who would not do it. And Christians today in Muslim territory will not do it. And that's the reason that they're trampled underfoot. That's why they're beaten and that's why they have their heads cut off. Smyrna was in an idolatrous city. The Roman cities were all idolatrous. But here is a city that is high on the list of idolatry. 
They were a great city in the Roman Empire. In fact, this city was one of the favorite, favorites of the emperors. It was a beautiful city with its natural harbor. Rising in the hills surrounding the harbor were magnificent temples built to Roman deities. It was one of the few cities of the empire that was actually a planned metropolis. It had been destroyed earlier, but then rebuilt with the intent to add to the natural surroundings. And so like a necklace of gold that went around the harbor, there was a beautiful street with astounding architecture of their temples. But even more important to Rome is what this city stood for. As far back as 165 B.C., they had declared their allegiance to Rome. And they were sold out to Rome so much that they were first to build a temple to the goddess Roma. Or in other words, they considered that Rome itself was a god. And they identified that and they worshipped that god, Roma. Smyrna was the first city that declared herself for this goddess. And then even further, Smyrna was favored by the emperors because they were elevated to the position of God themselves. They served them as gods. And so they had no problem. This is a city that has no problem announcing their allegiance to the Caesars as divine. And we'll look at that more in detail. In every city, this is a problem. It's a problem for persecution for Christians. And so when a temple was commissioned to be built to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna is, the, Smyrna is the city that was chosen for that honor. Not the more prominent city of Ephesus, but Smyrna, because they were sold out to all things that were Roman. And so Smyrna represents full-out commitment to pagan deities. And it is against that background and standing in contrast that Jesus said, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. And everything that was in that Smyrna culture was screaming out against that. They needed to hear this witness because their culture said otherwise. And perhaps there wasn't a place that was more suited to persecute Christians than this city. They were first and outstanding in their violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's the power of God that stood with them. Which of course begs this question. If their God is so powerful, then why did they experience persecution? That's a good question. And the Lord has his answers. You see, the world doesn't reason as God reasons. They say that the destruction of worshipers who defy their gods, that's proof their God is not real. Just as Muslims claim validity for their God because they successfully persecute Christians. And in the Smyrna culture, it's the same. If your God is the real God, then why doesn't your God protect you? But amazingly, God uses Christians that bear up under persecution as his witnesses. They wouldn't surrender their faith under duress, and that proves that the one that was in them is greater than he who is in the world. More evidence that our God is the true God, is the existence of Christian churches after 2,000 years of continual persecution. There's no one that's been able to stamp out the church, and that's not for lack of intense effort. Is it true that He is the true God? Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And so, despite the intense persecution, the church is still here the empire, Julian, many years later, recognized the fruitless efforts of trying to stamp out Christianity. 
With everything in his power, he tried to do it. But finally, he came to the conclusion. He said to try to remove Christ from the topmost position is not something I can do. Christ cannot be rooted out of his position for this one simple fact. He is God and there is none else. Persecution doesn't prove that he's not God. I know that's contrary to human reason, but the ability to withstand persecution and for the church to never go away is the proof that he is the real God. Well, we certainly have to ask the question, where's Rome today? Did they prove that their gods were the real gods? Where is Rome today? Where's Jupiter? Where's Apollo? Where's Venus? Where's Mars? You want me to tell you where they are? In the circle of a small telescope as you look at inanimate orbs in space. Jesus Christ is the God of the Bible. He will be here until the last. In his kingdom, there is no tolerance of imaginary gods. And he's taking us to a time and a place when a suicide bomber is only that. He bombs himself into eternity to meet a God known by his real name, Lucifer. And when he meets that God, there won't be any worship there, but alongside him in the fires of hell is the God that he worships who suffers with him in eternity. Our persecution turns into their punishment. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Is it wrong for Christians to think about the punishment of those who are against Christianity, about vengeance? Are we wrong to ask for vengeance? Well, I'll tell you that we're wrong to seek it for ourselves. The Bible doesn't let us do that. But it's not wrong to expect that it will come. Now, I want you to turn just a few pages to chapter 6 in Revelation. And this is during the time of tribulation when there's a one-world religion that consists of a conglomeration of false Christianity, of all forms of Islam and Buddhist and Hindus, all varieties, varieties of false religions will unite in a world of persecution against Christians. This is the time of the Antichrist where he will put on a full-scale press for the elimination of the true Israel of God and he'll be successful for only a time. And in chapter 6, those who have been martyred for their faith in that persecution ask a reasonable question in verse number 10. And they cried, this is in heaven, a scene in heaven, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the answer to that question comes back. Wait a little bit longer. The time for the enemy to do his worst is a limited time. And in the parts of Revelation that come after this, the persecutors meet their eternal doom. See, it's like I preached a few weeks ago. Most people see Jesus as only the meek and lowly Jesus. They see him as the docile lamb taken to the cross of Calvary and they are crucified. And they don't see Jesus at all as this, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will take his vengeance. He'll come riding on a white horse with a vesture that's dipped in blood. He's the God of Mount Sinai who spoke out in fire and smoke and earthquakes. He is God and there is none else. Now another interesting fact about Smyrna is the pride of this city. Pride has a different meaning today, doesn't it? We uh, 
know that pride stands for perversion today. We're ashamed to speak of pride because of its lewdness. Even the blessedness of the rainbow of God's been hijacked by that perversion. A few, uh, few weeks ago, my wife had a spring theme on the membership board outside, and up in the corner of the board was a little rainbow. Now, that was uh, innocent on her part. She was thinking of the beauty of the rainbow connected with the ark and the magnificence of God's beauty. And Jorge looked at that rainbow and he said, What? What's that doing up there? And we know what he was thinking. So I, I told my wife, I, I said, Maybe you should take the rainbow down. And still, she didn't make the connection about rainbows and gay pride. So she said, What for? And I said, Well, because Jorge doesn't like it. And, and she said, let Jorge do the board next time. So you've got to be careful about that. She believes in taking her pound of flesh right now. So watch out. But Smyrna was a proud city. And yes, there, there were homosexuals there. But that's not the pride that I mean. This is a city that thought they were great. They thought they were an everlasting city. They put their confidence in their gods and in the emperors. And they believed that Rome would never be defeated. And here's a city that will always keep its spot at the top. So they had the favor of their emperor. They had the favor of their gods. Who can remove them? And so you have to see that Jesus' statement here of the first and the last is a direct refutation of their claim. He will never end. They will end. And, and this statement is purposeful for Christians in Smyrna because they knew what their city claimed and Jesus disputed that claim. He disputes it here and he does clearly in the psalm. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There was once a king who was very prideful. He was determined that he could do whatever he wanted to do. No one had the power to stand in his way. Now I'd like you to look in your Bibles for just a moment in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel is a good place to see history and the present and the future all meld together. Daniel, you might say, it's the Old Testament's book of Revelation. And in chapter 4, there's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The king, he was the king of the greatest empire on the earth, and I would say that he was the... Uh, king of the poor man's Rome, but you might not understand that unless you know all the prophecy in Daniel, beginning with a vision of four mighty kingdoms in the world that finally culminate in the Roman Empire. But in chapter 4 and verse 29, we'll read this and then we'll be through today. Daniel 4 verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, 
and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was this was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was also prideful. He could push God's people around. He, he had them in captivity in Babylon, but he soon found out that he bit off more than he could chew, and that God showed him who is really God. And what did Nebuchadnezzar learn? Well, he learned what you need to know, and he learned what Smyrna needed to know, that temporary position is not an indication of supremacy. And so we read on in Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion to this in verse number 34, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Do you see those words? Those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. Christ's claim is the death to pride. He said that his counsel shall stand. All the rest that claim power have none. All of them will bend beneath his will. He is God and there is none else. How many times for you as the people of God, it seems like victory has escaped you. It hasn't. Though we may cry out to God now, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to endure what we're going through in this world? How long do we have to suffer and how long do things have to be hard on us because we are believers in Jesus Christ? This word comes back. Be patient. Be patient. Your day is coming. And so my last words for you this morning are, be patient. The Lord hasn't forgotten you. Though though America is continually moving away from God, God has not moved away from His people. He knows you. He knows everything you go through. Isaiah said, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You, recognizing You as God, and there is none else. The reason that we can approach you and speak to you today is not because of anything that we have done, not because of any pride in who we are. We are vile, wicked sinners that are 
only worthy of death. But we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who paid the penalty for our sins and gives us access into the glories of heaven and to you, the Father, to you, where we can speak to you as one of your children. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to some heart today, someone who doesn't know you, that they would see today that you are the only true God. We can't depend on anything else. Certainly, we can't depend upon ourselves. There is no God but you. Besides you, there is no God. Speak to someone's heart about that truth today and bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. And to those of us who are Christians and going through, perhaps some here, through trials, hardships, uh, things that make the heart feel heavy, Lord, we know that you know what all of us are going through. And I just ask, Lord, that you give comfort to hearts, help us to stay strong no matter what happens, that we keep our faith in you and faithful to this place to serve and honor you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us today, Lord, as we sing and prepare to leave this place. And Lord, help us to keep these thoughts in our minds. You are the only one true and living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.